Hello, and welcome to Green Tea with D-Man, episode 1.6a, Antonio Salazar, New State, Intelligence and Security Apparatus. Hey everyone, and welcome back. Today we're going to talk about the security and intelligence apparatus, which helped maintain and defend the Estado Novo from its opponents, like those we covered in episode 1.6. Any state which expects to function must have some kind of intelligence agency and security structure to protect it from adverse forces, both domestic and foreign. In the U.S., we have a well-established and, until recently, a well-insulated and secretive network of intelligence and security agencies, ranging from the CIA to FBI to NSA, and many others within the intelligence community and Department of Defense. The U.S. government is well-protected. Well, Portugal, under Antonio Salazar and the Estado Novo, was no different. The most well-known and primary intelligence and security organization under the Estado Novo was the PVDE, or the Police for Vigilance and Defense of the State, which was created in August 1933 by the Decree Law 22992. Then it was later renamed to the PIDE, which it's more well-known by, International and State Defense Police in 1945, then finally changed its name to the DGS, which was Directorate of General Security, in 1968, before the organization was disbanded in the 1974 Carnation Revolution. Overall, the PVDE was responsible for a multitude of roles, such as criminal investigative police, international police, internal security, and counterintelligence, foreign intelligence, immigration and emigration control, border surveillance, and prison administration service. Functions of the PVDE included keeping records and dossiers on political figures and prisoners, civil criminals, felons, and investigations. I mentioned before how Kunha Liao was exiled to the Azores after opposing Salazar, but I never gave the details behind the banishment, so here they are. During a political luncheon dedicated to Kunha Liao at the Aviz Hotel in Portugal's capital, Lisbon, several speeches were given by members of the judiciary, academia, and the military, who all stressed the need for Republican unity while opposing Salazar. Finally, Kunha Liao gave his speech, where he declared that this was a purely political meeting, and then he attacked those who had sided with the regime. He urged the attendees to unite and free the Republic from the hands of the priests who had forcefully usurped it. Well, one of the attendees at this luncheon was actually a high-ranking PVDE member who went on to report the event to his superiors. Not so coincidentally, soon thereafter, Decree 25317 was published, which dismissed 33 individuals from public service, including judges, judicial administrators, civil servants, military officers, and educators, of which Norton de Matos was a combination of those last two. On May 6, 1935, Kunha Liao was banished to the Azores for his attack on Salazar and the Estado Novo. Now, you get a feel that in Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union, that Kunha Liao would have had an appointment with a firing squad, but in places like Portugal and even post-1924 fascist Italy, it was extremely rare for dissidents to be assassinated or eliminated via capital punishment. Within the PVDE, 
the Vigilance and Defense Section of the Security Department, was responsible for defending the state and attacking oppositionists. The PVDE was also tasked to liaison with other Portuguese agencies, such as the Criminal Investigation Police, the Public Security Police, the Armed Forces, and even the Espionage Service of the Portuguese Legion. It was also the point agency for dealing with immigration and emigration, such as maintaining control of all foreigners who entered the country, including issuance of visas and residence permits. The organization also controlled emigration from Portugal to the state's colonies and to foreign countries, with a special focus on oppositionists and deserters from the Portuguese army and navy, as the highest number of deserters from the country occur from Portuguese naval vessels when docked in foreign harbors. After 1940, the PVDE expanded to include censorship activities, such as banning and destroying books, but also as a vetting agency for all sorts of positions within government and even private enterprises where executives could request the PVDE to confirm if candidates for positions in their companies had political or criminal records. As part of its responsibility to oversee prison administration, the PVDE ran five prison camps, with three in Portugal, located in Aljube, Caxias, and Peniche, one on Terceira Island in the Azores, and lastly, the infamous Terrafal prison camp in Cape Verde off the coast of Africa. The PVDE was run by an army captain, Director Agostino Lorenzo, from 1932 to 1945. Director Lorenzo was so close to Antonio Salazar and so trusted that he was given almost unlimited funding and extensive leeway to run the agencies he saw fit. Believing that Lorenzo was doing his job well, Salazar did not ask for too many details on items such as living conditions at Tarifal. American intelligence reports during World War II claimed that the PVDE was Gestapo-trained and modeled on the Gestapo. However, a study of the intelligence organization by American historian Douglas Wheeler shows there is little to no substance in these claims. Of the eventual thousands of officers and agents in the PVDE, a mere three received any type of training in pre-1939 Nazi Germany. Director Agostino Lorenzo harbored pro-British feelings, and even during the early days of World War II, when the Axis were winning the tide, British intelligence agents had only to ask for access to Portuguese intelligence records, including information on visas, passports, and other documents, which Director Lorenzo always granted. We will get more into the PVDE's relationship with the warring nations in World War II during our later episodes on Portugal's role during the Second World War. For years, it had been normal practice to exile dissidents to the colonies with the label of degradado, which all but eliminated them from possibility of employment or climbing in social status. However, this proved to be an issue as it led to a breakdown in discipline among native Africans in the Portuguese colonies who came across the degradados, but also added to a population boom between these mainland Portuguese and the natives in the colonies, which fell out of financial aid from the Portuguese administration. In the last episode, I mentioned how the leftists never really organized against Salazar with exception to an attempted uprising in January 1934. The backdrop to this uprising was, obviously by this point, that Salazar's regime was increasingly strengthening its position 
while undermining its opponents through garnering working-class supporters via the corporative initiatives. In addition, as stated in the last episode, the leftists found themselves under threat as Rolao Preto's fascist movement continued to draw more and more of the working class away from the leftists. Sensing that time was running out, the anarcho-syndicalists under the CGT, or General Confederation of Labor, decided to schedule a workers' revolt against the regime on January 18, 1934, which would be coordinated with the planned Republican uprising. However, the Estado Novo's intelligence and security apparatus had the upper hand and moved quickly to smash the Republicans before they could get their revolt off the ground. According to official notes published by Salazar on November 28th and then December 1st, 1933, Portuguese aviator and army officer José Manuel Sarmento de Beres had been arrested for plotting against the regime and in his possession were documents showing the Republicans' plan to stage an uprising. In December 1932, Salazar and the regime had granted a general amnesty to all opponents, bar 50 individuals, most of whom were living outside of Portugal, untouched by the regime's intelligence and security services, so long as they agreed to stay away. It would seem the amnesty did little to deter Salazar's opponents. Armed with the list of names and the plans for the Republican Rising, the regime moved swiftly against the rebels, while Salazar kept the press muzzled to prevent news from getting out that the state was on to the uprising. With the Republican Rising eliminated, Salazar decided to allow the leftists to stage their revolt in order to force them into the open, and thus allow the populace to see what these anarcho-syndicalists and communists represented, radicalism and violent disorder. In the early hours of January 18th, the anarchist unions went to strike, while the communists violently attacked both regime elements as well as national syndicalists who had set up pickets to block the movement of the rebels. The massive crackdown by the government with support from armed workers and civilians, crushed the uprising with the worst of the action over by 9.30 a.m. In a note to his superiors back in Berlin, Germany's minister to Portugal, Hans Freytag, reported that Salazar's government was well aware of the conspiracy and acted with such force and speed that the Republicans decided to completely bail out of the uprising, while the Marxist leaders failed to display full commitment. Over 700 people were arrested, where the special military court handed down 260 guilty verdicts. Surprisingly, the uprising and ensuing prosecution resulted in no direct deaths, though many were injured. The sentences handed down were split into three brackets. 107 of those guilty were given prison terms of up to two years. 98 defendants were given heavy fines and either banned from continental Portugal or imprisoned for up to eight years. Lastly, the remaining 55 defendants were heavily fined and banished or imprisoned for 10 to 20 years. Not a single death penalty was handed out. Can you imagine that occurring in Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union? Heck, as late as 1942, the U.S. executed a citizen for treason, so I think this event is a good indicator to demonstrate that a lot of the propaganda directed against Salazar as being a brutal, murderous, and tyrannical dictator is just that, it's propaganda, largely attributed to leftists and has a shallow base of facts, especially when compared to the rest of the world's governments during this time period. Now with that said, and keeping with the times, we're getting into the actual, factual evidence 
of the regime's harsh methods and punishment, because in 1934, following the January uprising, the regime thought of a new way to deal with dissidents, and at first decided on a prison camp to be built in Angola at the mouth of the Kunene River. However, the regime recognized that putting a prison camp smack dab in the middle of its prized African colony surely would cause backlash. So instead, it was decided via Decree Law 26539 on April 23, 1936, that a penal colony for political and social prisoners would be created at Tarafal on the island of Santiago in the Cape Verde archipelago. At first, Tarafal was seen to be a rehabilitative work camp, primarily agricultural labor, which would be supported by a local water source that was present. However, when the camp became operational in October 1936, the first 150 prisoners, most of whom had been transferred from the Azores, arrived to a barren island with a couple of tents pitched for them. They had to build the camp and their living from the ground up. Now, most of the original prisoners were trade unionists, anarchists, and communists, to include the mutineers from the Afonso de Albuquerque and the Dow. In addition, one of Portugal's earliest world-class soccer players, Candido de Oliveira, also found himself granted a short stint at Tarafal in between the years he coached the Portuguese national soccer team from 1935 to 1945. A quick side note, Candido failed to lead the team to qualification for the 1938 World Cup in France as the Portuguese team lost 2-1 in its qualifier against Switzerland. Maybe Candido was bitter about his stay in prison, or it was just that Portugal needed Cristiano Ronaldo on the team. Either way, Portugal would not qualify for its first World Cup until 1966 when it was hosted in England, where Portugal finished third. Now back to our story. Despite the original plans of the camp to provide rehabilitation through agricultural labor, it soon changed to a prison intent on breaking the will of its residents largely due to the political atmosphere being hypersensitized courtesy of the Spanish Civil War. One of the main ways to break the prisoners was through special punishment in the so-called frying pan, which was a cell with measurements of about 18 feet by 9 feet, some distance from the main camp that had little ventilation which, during the hot days so frequent to Cape Verde, led to a brutal spell. Aside from the frying pan, there were mosquitoes, harsh labor conditions, inadequate food, and near-zilch medical care. Since Tarafal did not report to the Ministry of Justice, the PVDE slash PIDE set the conditions as they saw fit, and this largely mirrored conditions at home, and considering the camp opened in the midst of the Spanish Civil War, conditions were awful for its socialist, anarcho-syndicalist, and communist prisoners. In 1940, the leader of the anarcho-syndicalists, Mario Castellano, died in the camp. Two years later, in 1942, one of the Portuguese communist leaders, Bento Gonçalves, also died in the camp. Tarafal would eventually be deactivated in 1954, but not before housing over 400 prisoners over its lifespan, with 32 of them dying from the harsh living conditions. Eventually, the camp would be renamed and reopened during the colonial struggle against subversive elements in Angola, Equatorial Guinea, and Mozambique, but that will have to wait until our later episodes dedicated to Portuguese colonial wars. 
Other methods for the new state to execute its power, aside from the PVDE, was the TME, the Special Military Court, which adjudicated on crimes against the security of the state, such as the January 1934 uprising I just mentioned a few minutes ago, and organs of sovereignty, which meant the spread of oppositionist political propaganda, any distribution of information meant to undermine public opinion, and labor strikes. Despite the armed forces taking a back seat to running the country, Salazar made sure to utilize individually loyal military officers to support the regime's efforts in protecting itself from its enemies. The traditional police forces within Portugal, such as the Republican National Guard and the Public Safety Police, continued to exist, but the PVDE was center stage. By 1936, much of the press was towing the line as requested by the Estado Novo, which assisted the regime in posturing itself against the opposition. An additional layer involved, like many regimes, censorship, which was actually its own directorate set up under the Ministry of Interior, but it also shared in function with the National Propaganda Secretariat, or SNP. Like all regimes, censorship and repression were executed through legal means. As covered in episode 1.5b, the 1933 constitution provided for decree laws to be utilized when the government wanted to address issues facing the nation. Between 1933 to 1937, the government made plenty use of decree laws, with just a few I will cover here regarding censorship and repression. Decree law number 16011, October 9, 1928, stated that all Portuguese who, abroad, be it as individuals, be it in league with others, promote either rebellion against the government of the nation or the internal or external discredit of the country, will be subjected to the application, by the Council of Ministers, of a fine proportional to their wealth and to the gravity of their actions. Decree Law 22468, April 11, 1933, regulated rift of assembly stating, meanings held for the purpose of political or social propaganda can only be held once permission from the civil governor of the respective district has been secured. The very next decree, 22469, also dated April 11, 1933, stated, The sole role of censorship is to prevent the perversion of public opinion's function as a social force, and it shall be exercised in such a way as to defend public opinion from all factors that might steer it away from truth, justice, morals, good administration, and the common good, and to prevent attacks against the fundamental principles of social organization. Decree Law 23203, November 6, 1933, created that special military court that we mentioned earlier, the TME. And lastly, Decree Law 27003, September 14, 1936, introduced an oath of loyalty to be sworn by present incoming holders of civil service jobs, as well as peripheral services of the state, and it went as such. I declare on my honor that I am integrated in the social order established by the 1933 Constitution, and that I actively repudiate communism and all subversive ideas. Next time, we are going to dive into the Spanish Civil War with the focus on Portugal's role in what is seen as the trial run for belligerent nations of World War II, where Germany, Italy, and the Soviet Union 
tested out their armaments, trained members of their armed forces, and dueled in a secret war of intelligence operations, which would last the next nine years. This next episode is going to be a bit of a bear, so I'm forecasting that will not likely be published and uploaded until probably mid-August, unless I can find a boatload of extra free time, which is highly doubtful at this point. But I can assure many of you that it will be an enjoyable episode, because we're going to talk about man's favorite pastime, war. Not just any war, but war between the major conflicting ideologies, which set the stage for the calamity known as World War II. Until then, this is Green Tea with D-Man. Thanks for listening.